Hello all, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. This episode is a recap episode, where I'm going to attempt to take all 20 episodes from Season 1 and repackage them in a bite-sized wrapper, where the main points that we've talked about so far are highlighted. Not really sure if this is possible or not. We'll probably have found out by the end today, I suppose, but I did have a few of you request the recap episode, so here I am to give it a shot. Before I get too far, though, I wanted to let you know that our Season 2 opener won't be too far behind. In the meantime, I highly recommend that you go check out the Renaissance English History Podcast, which is run by Heather Tesco. It's a great podcast to begin with if you're into Renaissance English history, but Heather has recently put out a few episodes that focus on the English Navy during the Tudor period. The specific episode that I think you'll really enjoy is episode 41, where Heather has done a great interview with Benjamin Redding, who is a PhD candidate at the University of Warwick. He's focusing on naval enterprise and maritime revolution in England and France between 1545 and 1642. The interview is pretty wide-ranging. It covers a lot of interesting info on shipbuilding, cargo capacity and measurement, uh, the general status of the Navy with its development during the Tudor period. They also talked some naval warfare techniques and maritime exploration as well. So it's right up our alley here, and I'm grateful to Heather for putting the interview up for us and letting me know about it so that I can pass it on to all of you. It's really great, and you should go check it out. Our recap today will be a bit of freeform rambling from me because it is a little difficult to pack the thousand years of history that we've covered so far into a single episode. Perhaps a good initial remark here is that the chronology behind the Bronze Age cultures and the artifacts that have been discovered so far is a sticky subject in and of itself. Various scholars adopt various chronologies for their culture of focus as we might expect. Each culture or region has competing chronologies applied to it, but then when you zoom out to try and see the Bronze Age world as a whole, you see the conflicting chronologies can make it a royal headache when we attempt to use a single overarching chronology to form the basis of a narrative. A podcast without narrative would be quite the snooze, and I hope that this podcast hasn't veered too far into snooze territory so I have tried to make the rough chronologies work as much as possible. I do just bring up this issue because it needs to be kept in mind, especially if any of you out there are specialists who have taken issue with my treatment of any period or artifact in particular. The other thing that I wanted to note at the outset here is that this recap, and really the podcast as a whole so far, has been difficult to manage because there are things going on in every place imaginable, all at the same time. That is history, that's just reality, but the act of putting something like an examination of the past into words means that we can only discuss one item at a time. I'll try to give us a good idea of the simultaneous developments in different regions and how they were or were not intertwined, but that's another tall task if you ask me. Caveats aside now, let's get into the meat of the recap. 
We began in Mesopotamia, the Fertile Crescent, as I remember it being called in grade school. This area is generally thought to be the one where the earliest civilizations had their roots, and our first meeting with the Ubayid people revealed to us that the occupants of early Mesopotamia began as farmers in the north, gradually moving south into the alluvial plain where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers drain into the Persian Gulf. We know that the Ubayid people were boaters thanks to the discovery of several clay boat models from Ubayid period sites. One in particular seems to depict a reed boat, and this would make sense because the geographic area covered by Ubayid sites is replete with the reeds that are still used to make boats by the native inhabitants of that region today, the Marsh Arab people. In conjunction with the reeds and the Ubayid boat model, archaeologists have also discovered preserved bitumen at Ubayid sites. Bitumen is a black tar-like substance that occurs naturally in the region, and the inhabitants there used it to waterproof their reed boats, among many other uses. The Ubayid period as a whole is generally thought to have ended around 3800 BCE. So even these early settlers of southern Mesopotamia were adept boaters that established the early fishing communities and local trade around the northern end of the Persian Gulf. Between 3700 and 3000 BCE is when things really begin to pick up around the ancient world. The Uruk period in Mesopotamia runs concurrently with the proto-dynastic period in Egypt. But toward the end of the millennium, the Indus Valley Civilization and the Minoan Civilization also begin to emerge in their respective locations. Mesopotamia and Egypt certainly seem to have coalesced more quickly than did those other regions, but the Indus Valley Civilization in particular has seen very little research in Western academia, at least when we compare it to the more famous cultures of the ancient world, so that makes it a little hard for us to study in depth. If we focus now on the Uruk period in Mesopotamia, we will see how the fertility of the land there led to their culture developing a complex canal system, which in turn led to the development of the administrative government. The population grew rather quickly, and as society began to stratify, the elites needed luxury goods to advertise their elevated status. Imagine that. Not only were luxury goods desired, but even basic resources not native to the region were beginning to see demand from the growing population. Enter the merchant class, who rapidly expanded trade to satisfy these demands. It's in the Uruk period, then, that we looked at the evidence of a merchant class beginning to import resources from distant lands into Mesopotamia. Resources like wood for building, copper for luxury goods and weapons, and so on. Further boat models from the royal graves at Ur show us that reed boats were still in use and that wood boats had possibly been introduced by this period as well. One of the podcast's recurring themes also cropped up here at this point, that is, that the early Mesopotamian people had a proclivity to name their boats and to hold them in very high regard. There's evidence of boats with names like the Crown and the Quay, and a lot of other names that are very artistic and ornamental in nature. 
in the progression of the podcast here, we continued on into Mesopotamian history. But in reality, Egypt was also developing at the same time. We talked about a major difference between Mesopotamia and Egypt, one that's probably apparent to most anyone who knows anything about the two places. Mesopotamia developed the canal irrigation system, and the several major rivers that made their entire region quite fertile were important to their culture. In contrast, Egypt had one central pillar upon which the entire civilization rested, the Nile River. Now, while the Uruk period was progressing to the north, Egypt saw its pre-dynastic period develop. Even at this early stage for Egypt, the Nile was a main focus of their cultural and religious mindset, so it's logical that the boats they used to traverse the Nile would have factored heavily in their worldview. The boats used by Egyptians were largely papyrus reed boats, fashioned from the ubiquitous papyrus reeds that grow along the banks of the Nile. There are many depictions of this type of boat from pre-dynastic Egypt, and we talked about several in turn. There is also pictorial evidence that Egypt had already by this point developed a trade relationship with the societies of the Levant, think the Cedars of Lebanon, and possibly even with Mesopotamia as well. The oldest clear depiction of a sail being used on a boat comes from pre-dynastic Egypt, which is significant. And although they may have used sails to traverse the Nile, we know that even in early Egypt they had begun to cross the wadis that cut across the eastern mountains and ran to the coast of the Red Sea. Egypt was more closely connected with this body of water than most people realize, and more evidence for this connection comes at a later date. It's near the end of the pre-dynastic period and the start of the first dynasty, so around 3100 BCE or so, that we begin to see the remains not of boat depictions, but of actual boats in Egypt, and many of them by this point had begun being constructed with wood instead of papyrus reeds. Early examples were found at Abydos, where over a dozen boat graves were discovered buried near a royal necropolis. Wooden boats were enclosed in a brick casing to preserve them, and in their original form, they were whitewashed. So to the Egyptians who were around when they stood in their desert graves, they would have appeared as a ghostly fleet anchored in the Egyptian desert. The most notable and archaeologically significant example of a ship from ancient Egypt is undoubtedly the Khufu ship. This ship was found in a sealed pit, next to the Great Pyramid of Giza, both of which are thought to have been built during the 4th dynasty reign of Khufu, around 2500 BCE or so. In episode 6, we looked in great detail at this ship, its discovery and reconstruction, even the construction techniques utilized by the original Egyptian builders. The technological feat that is evidenced in this large wooden ship shows us that the ancient Egyptians had refined their boat building over centuries, and that the use of these large boats was probably common, if only within royal circles anyway. Boats had also become a centerpiece of the Egyptian religion that focused on the afterlife, with water and boat journeys constantly cropping up in Egyptian depictions of the afterlife and the underworld. 
Egypt, even in the Old Kingdom period, had much contact with its neighbors connected by water. Trade with Byblos in the Levant was constant, and some depictions even hint that there was enmity between Egypt and at least one tribe from the modern-day region of Syria. We see ship depictions from the 5th Dynasty tomb that show Syro-Canaanite prisoners bound on a ship returning to Egypt. It seems that Egypt also had trade relations with lands to the south, conducted via the Suez Gulf and the Red Sea, as I mentioned a moment ago. Evidence at Wadi el-Jarf shows what appears to be an ancient port that was used to store ships and goods. This storage brings up a related point, though, as seen in the Khufu ship and another contemporary remains. We know that Egyptian ship construction utilized a method of edge-joining planks with mortise and tenon joints, and then adding an intricate system of internal lashing to keep the ship's shell intact. That is why it's generally called the shell-first technique. The takeaway point is that this method allowed the Egyptians to build a ship piece by piece wherever they had their supply of building materials. They could then take it apart, transport the pieces wherever they wanted, preferably to a location with an adequate water supply, though, and then they would reassemble it for use. This storage port at Wadi al-Jarf on the Red Sea seems to have been one location where they brought the pieces of their ships and reassembled them to then sail south on the Red Sea and trade with peoples in the mythical land of Punt. There's a lot of speculation about the land of Punt, but we talked about some of the various theories regarding its location, its reality or unreality, and about several Egyptian expeditions to the south. We also talked about an innovation that Egypt added to their shell-first ships, ships that had initially tended to break apart as they crested tall waves. The hogging truss was that innovation, and it was their way of keeping the ship's hull at a high enough level of tension that it could handle the pressure of sea waves, waves that it wouldn't have encountered if it were being used on the Nile River alone. The Old Kingdom of Egypt gave way to the First Intermediate Period around 2200 BCE, and by that time both the Harappan civilization and the Minoan civilization had taken stronger root to the southeast and northwest, respectively. Before we briefly discuss them, I should also note that this time period roughly coincides with the decline of the Akkadian Empire in Mesopotamia, and a brief period of reduction there as well. We talked about boats in the Akkadian Empire in episode 3, where we looked at their religious significance to Sumerians, as well as their role in the expansion of the Akkadian Empire and in Sumerian trade on the Persian Gulf. The well-known ruler Sargon of Akkad seems to have used ships in his military campaigns around 2300 BCE. Getting back to the other cultures now, around this same time period we see evidence of basic boats on Crete and in the Aegean, but also on the Indian subcontinent. It's entirely likely that the Harappan civilization had been active on the sea since as early as 3000, as their goods have been found in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and around the Arabian Peninsula. The bulk of trade evidence between the Akkadian Empire and Mesopotamia, for instance, 
and the Indian subcontinent, though, is centered around 2300 BCE. And it's thought that the trading cultures on the south of the Arabian Peninsula served as the middlemen between the Harappans and the larger civilizations to their west and north. It's quite likely that the Harappans were sailors of the Arabian Sea, but we don't really have any archaeological remains of ships that have been found yet. The widespread presence of their goods around the Near East shows us, however, that even by 2300, the ancient world had become quite interconnected and trade routes stretched far and wide. In episode 11, we also looked at the Periplus of the Erythrian Sea, which was written by a Greek Egyptian during the 1st century BCE. This work is from a later time, yes, but a Periplus is a document that lists ports and coastal landmarks generally in order, and it normally includes distances between those things, sailing conditions, weather patterns, all of these so that the captain of a vessel could know what to expect on a voyage, how to navigate unknown waters, even when to set sail to find the best conditions. The Periplus of the Erythrian Sea describes these items around the Indian Ocean, from Egypt east to India, and although the author of this particular work included the presence of sea serpents as a danger, it still gives us a great overview of the type of voyage that a merchant could have expected were he to venture from Egypt to India or the other way round. In our episode focusing on the Indus Valley civilization, we also looked at some boat models found there, in addition to a few other items related to the region's maritime history. So far, then, we've seen the basics of maritime history in Mesopotamia, Egypt, India, and some of the regions in between. Our Season 1 episodes obviously went into much more detail, so I hope you understand that I just want to give you the broad picture today. I'm sure you do understand that, though. So onward and forward. The main early maritime region that's still missing from the list is that of the Aegean Sea. Later on, it will be home to the Greek powers, which we will begin to look at coming up in Season 2. But our first stop there began to look at the Minoans, a people whose very name is taken straight from mythology. The Minoans really caused many scholars and novices alike to scratch their heads in some regards, because it seems like we know much about them, but at the same time, there is much we don't know. Thucydides called the Minoan civilization the first true thalassocracy, saying that King Minos organized a navy in the Cyclades, put down the pirates, and controlled the sea. But unless we take Thucydides at his word, we have an unclear picture of Minoan origins. What is clear is that the islands of the Cyclades had occupants even in Neolithic times, and being islands, their occupants had to have gotten there somehow. Boats spring to my mind, naturally, but anyway, they got there in the end. We talked about a few early Bronze Age boat models from locations around the Aegean, models that date before 2000 BCE, and they bear some unique features when we compare them to early boat models from other cultures, which is a sign of the cultural idiosyncrasies of the Aegean. As the Minoan civilization continued to develop after 2000 BCE, 
the number and style of boat depictions in Minoan artwork continued to increase. This gives us a good footing to say that boats, ships, and the ocean were a central part of Minoan culture, as they understandably would have been for a culture that was located in a region replete with small islands. The Minoans probably weren't a tightly centralized culture like Egypt was, but the loose association of islands' cities were connected by a largely similar mindset, culture, similar art, religion, and ethnicity. So we call the Minoans by one name now, even though we don't know what they would have called themselves at the time. As we continued forward in history, we began to see how around 1800 BCE, the evidence of relation, trade, and interconnection between all of the civilizations that we've mentioned so far began to reach new heights. Sumerian rulers speak of trade with Egypt, Anatolia, Lebanon, Africa, and Arabia. The rulers of Egypt speak of the same thing, trade with almost every other culture that's known from the period. Basically, the records we have from most of these cultures during the early Bronze Age shows that they all traded with one another, for the natural resources that were not native to their own region. To that, they added luxury goods, artwork, and weapons that were made by their neighbors, whose artisans specialized in one thing or another. For example, a treasure discovered under an Egyptian temple and dated to around 1900 contained items and precious stones that have been identified as having come from regions as varied as Mesopotamia, Syria, Anatolia, and possibly even Minoan Crete. Evidence from the Egyptian explorer Hanu, who sailed around 1950 BCE, tells us that Egypt had expanded its trade during the Middle Kingdom, both to the south and the north. This period of expansion and high trade levels seems to have tailed off for a bit around 1750. Here, Egypt entered the Second Intermediate Period, and its sea trade dipped significantly. To the north, Mesopotamia had also succumbed to a drought at first, but then to enter Nessin's struggle beginning in about 2000 BCE. This too harmed Mesopotamia's overseas trade. And although they saw a brief revival when Hammurabi was king in 1790 BCE, his Babylonian empire didn't last long, and by 1750, Mesopotamia had declined to the point where it wouldn't really factor at all in maritime trade again during the Bronze Age. The Minoan people in the Aegean were also hit hard by an earthquake at this time period, and it seems to have dealt a temporary blow to their development. So trade at about 1750 BCE saw a dip on all fronts. It would bounce back before long, though, I assure you. And lest you think that the episodes in this time frame were all about cultural development, let me also assure you that we looked at the environmental factors that made Crete and Egypt such great trade partners. In addition, we also continue to focus on boat depictions and remains in the archaeological record, from all of the concerned places and parties. It would simply take forever to recap each of those items today, so you'll just have to go back and take another listen to the episodes if you're curious. Or, I do have transcripts available for Patreon backers and website members, so check out the website for info on getting access to those 
if that's more up your alley. As I said, the Bronze Age cultures rebounded pretty well, except for those in Mesopotamia. But Egypt by this point was beginning a decidedly downward trend. The stage was set for the Aegean to take a more prominent place in the lineup of maritime powers. For a while, the Minoans did just that. Their culture reached a high point of uh, expansion and influence around 1650 BCE. Crete was a main Minoan center, but most of the islands around the Aegean and the Cyclades were part of the Minoan network, if you will. Their trade extended far in the ancient world, and in episode 13, we looked at an amazing and famous fresco from a place that's been called the Admiral's House. It's in a Minoan town on the island of Thera. This beautiful fresco tells us a lot about their ships, their artistic style, and about the Minoan mindset. But the reason that it even survived for us to study today is that it was buried in volcanic ash at some point around 1600 BCE. The Thera eruption was another focus of that episode, and we looked at how it would have affected the Bronze Age world with its far-reaching atmospheric effects and fallout. It seems to have dealt the Minoans a fairly serious blow, perhaps even a first blow in the series that would ultimately bring their reign to an end. In conjunction, we also looked at the idea that the Thera eruption could have been the historical basis for the Atlantis myth, so check out that episode if Atlantis is something that's always been of interest to you. You might not like my conclusion on it, but it is one of the theories that's out there anyhow. In this same relative period where the Minoans were flying high and then hit by a volcano, and right after Hammurabi's Babylonian Empire had fallen apart, the Egyptians were also fighting off their Hyksos overlords. The Hyksos had invaded Egypt around 1650 and had ruled for a while, but about a hundred years later, in 1550 or so, Pharaoh Kamos drove out the foreign rulers, partially by using the Nile to transport troops and attack a few Hyksos-controlled cities from the water. Egypt would never reach its former glory, but the new kingdom saw a revival of sorts, and Egypt did send out some more maritime expeditions. Around 1500 BCE to the north, the Minoans began to wane even further, and the Mycenaeans emerged to fill the empty gap. The Mycenaeans didn't reach their full power until 1300 or so, but in the period between 1500 and 1300, the Bronze Age world became even more interconnected than it had ever been before, a fact that contributed to the growth and power of the Mycenaeans in the Aegean and the Eastern Mediterranean. This interconnection was our focus in episode 14, where we looked at the Amarna Letters, a series of correspondence between and among the major rulers of the period around 1350 BCE. We saw that trade, political arrangements, and familial relations were all discussed by these rulers, but they also accused one another of aiding regional pirates and seeking to take advantage of their neighbors. In the Amarna Letters, then, we see that the politics of the Bronze Age world really paralleled the politics of the modern world to a surprising extent. 
As we entered the last quarter of season one, we focused in on the Mycenaeans alone, discussing how they were the first to really expand the use of the galley-style ship, the Pentaconter and Triaconter specifically. We looked at the early artistic depictions of the galley in the Mediterranean, and we also saw more evidence of the relationship and contact between the Mycenaeans and Egypt, the Levant, and beyond. The Mycenaeans really became the main act on the Mediterranean by 1400 BCE or so, and although we briefly discussed a marvelous Egyptian image related to Hatshepsut's maritime voyage south to Punt, the focus of trade and turmoil was in the eastern Mediterranean from 1350 onward. Egypt began to try and push north to control port cities in the south of the Levant, and to a degree Egypt found success there. Likewise, the northern port cities in the Levant, places like Byblos and Ugarit, began to grow wealthy thanks to their central role in connecting the trade that took place on the Mediterranean. In episode 16, we got a first-hand look at the role that Levantine merchants played at this time. In that episode, we examined two shipwrecks that have given us a wealth of information about trade in the 13th century BCE Mediterranean. Copper was a large part of that trade, but many other precious stones and wares, even the oldest glass ingots discovered to date, were found in shipwrecks off of Cape Galadonia and Uluburun. Now just a minute ago I mentioned the Amarna letters, and it was in those letters that we saw how the Bronze Age world had begun to fray around the edges by 1350. Trade still flowed, as the two shipwrecks we looked at proves, but by 1300 especially, the interconnected high-level trade between cultures began to feel pressure from several different directions and for several different reasons. Environmental factors seem to have caused a dip in crop yields around certain regions of the Mediterranean, which in turn caused migration and an increase in warfare and raids. The environment alone did not cause this flux, though, and other factors like the collapse of highly centralized economies and the breakdown of high-level long-distance trade all swirled into the perfect storm that we call the Late Bronze Age Collapse. Before we focused on the collapse, though, we spent episode 17 looking at the early stages of it, where the Mycenaeans made a habit of launching raids against coastal towns in Anatolia. These raids seem to have been a big basis of the Trojan War mythology, and we spent a fascinating hour looking at Homer's tale of black ships, and whether the Trojan War may have actually happened, in one form or another. Spoiler alert here, there actually is an amazing amount of archaeological evidence that matches up with names and places from Homer's Iliad. So I enjoyed making that episode, and I would recommend you listen to that one, even if you don't listen to the rest. The final three episodes of Season 1 were a trilogy that looked at the Late Bronze Age collapse, and one of the main, yet enigmatic players in that story, the Sea Peoples. The Hittites also come into the narrative at this late point in the Bronze Age, but they were largely uninvolved in the maritime aspect of things. 
As we near the end here, I'm really going to struggle to summarize the late Bronze Age collapse, just because it had so many moving parts, so many dates to make it all make sense, and just a lot of information overall. My best shot here is to say that over the course of 150 years or so, from 1300 to 1150 BCE, the Hittite Empire collapsed completely, the Mycenaeans fell victim to famine and mass migration, not to mention the destruction of many palace centers that left the Aegean an empty shell of what it once was. But the Egyptians also had to repel a large invasion of the Sea Peoples more than once. It was actually Egypt's battles with the Sea Peoples that gave us a lot of the information we have about that enigmatic group. So that's where our focus was in terms of early naval warfare and the transference of technological advancements between cultures and more information. Much of it was tied to the amazing inscriptions of a naval battle at the Temple of Ramesses III at Medinet Habu. Once we got there, though, we didn't just drop the Mycenaeans off the list of players altogether. We did look at the destruction of Mycenaean cities, the causes of that destruction, and the possibility that some of the displaced Mycenaeans joined up with the Sea Peoples to make up a portion of their power base. This would make some sense because the Sea Peoples used ships that were similar to those of the Mycenaeans, and some of the Sea Peoples were eventually settled in the Levant, and some of them bear many striking cultural similarities to the Mycenaeans, who at one point inhabited the Aegean. We ended our look at the Late Bronze Age collapse by looking at evidence from the city of Ugarit. An amazing trove of texts found in the remains of the burned city reveal to us the city's final days, and they go a long way toward helping us understand the collapse as a whole. As concerns Ugarit, they reveal to us the city's last desperate attempts to get grain shipments in by sea, and the appearance of enemy warships on the horizon but they also document the city's correspondence with other cities around the region and the destruction that was happening all over the place. Definitely listen to the final three episodes of season one to get the whole picture there. But as it all shook out, we saw that the Aegean powers were drastically reduced, the Egyptians also fell from their once lofty perch, and a handful of Levantine cities like Byblos emerged in good shape ready to take advantage of their fortune and turn the Levant into the first post-Bronze Age trading superpower. Today, we call this first superpower the Phoenician people. They didn't call themselves that, though, and we will learn a bit more about them, where they came from, and how they influenced the world after the late Bronze Age collapse as the podcast moves into Season 2. That is the gist of what I came up with for a Season 1 recap. I do have one administrative item to wrap up our recap, and I'm going to hold the thanks for reviews and new members until our Season 2 opening episode. My item of note here is just a correction to our previous episode, the interlude look at prehistoric watercraft around the world, which I hope you enjoyed, by the way. Listener Russell was kind enough to point out something that I stated incorrectly in that episode. 
I believe I made reference to the Tasmanians having originally reached their island by the same boats that 19th century European explorers witnessed the Tasmanians of that day using. But Russell correctly clarified for us that Tasmania was connected to mainland Australia up until the end of the last ice age and the subsequent rise in sea levels. I appreciate you alerting us to that oversight on my part, Russell. Uh, It may be a minor point, as you called it, but accuracy is key when we're looking at the past. Russell also mentioned that sailing a raft from Timor to Australia, like the first Mariners project did, may not have been possible for the Stone Age sailors due simply to the sea level difference again. They may have instead first landed in New Guinea, or even on land that is now submerged. Regardless, Russell makes another great point in reminding us that no matter where the exact spot of man's first landing in the region was, they still had to cross open sea at some point, which is a remarkable and unique achievement for Stone Age man, indeed. And that does it for what I've got on our rather lengthy recap here today. I hope I've done the first season justice, and that this is an accurate representation of the high points from those episodes. I'm really looking forward to season two with all of you here in the very near future. It won't be long, and it should be very enjoyable. There's tons of material for us to cover. Thank you for your support, everyone. Season two will be along shortly. And until then, thank you for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.